Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that we would see Christ our King this morning. Would we see him as the one who reigns over this, this kingdom that can't be shaken? Would we see him as the Lord of our own hearts? Would we see him as the one who is our security when it seems like everything else might be insecure? Help us to see Jesus. Amen. So I'd like for you to see if you could imagine a more unbearable kind of person than a person who has a theology and an anthropology degree. Who could be a more awful conversation partner? It's worse. I was also a homeschooled only child. So going outside has always been an uphill battle, right? Now they told us in our anthropology department that they were making us into people who were basically unfit to have social lives, especially during election seasons. Because after all of this time studying anthropology, you're going to look at things and you're just going to be like, well, that's just a social construct. It's not what you think it is. That's just a made-up ritual. It doesn't actually mean anything. Or democracy is just a farce and we're all actually under a corporate oligarchy. Right? Things like that that ruin conversations. But there was something, and I'm going to risk being unbearable here, that I found really interesting that we did actually kind of dive into. We talked about power and authority. Actually, we talked about power and authority way too much. But we talked about power and authority and what it means for us to experience it. So think specifically about the government and how we experience the government. You don't walk outside, step on your front porch, feel a cold breeze, see autumn colors, smell that kind of musty, decaying leaf smell, and think, wow, the power of Joe Biden fills this place. It radiates. Well, we experience the power of our government through things like symbols or institutions. So the Virginia Department of Transportation is actually a way that we experience our government. Schools or police, military, or like symbols that are as simple as the things that are on our money. And there's a simple reason for that. Things that we don't like see in front of us, that we can't feel. If we can't see them or touch them, we don't feel them or experience them as deeply. We need to actually have them in front of us. We actually struggle to believe that things are real when we can't touch them or see them. So there's a really good example of this. Think about citizenship. Becoming a United States citizen actually requires you to go through a process with a bunch of steps. There's a vetting process. There's a test. And at the end of all of that process, there's a ritual. Once you get to the end of that process, once you get to this ritual, then something actually changes. It might not be like the core of your identity, but something is going to change between you and the American government. Your relationship to that government is going to change. Because at the end of that process, as you've passed through that ritual, you're no longer a guest or a sojourner or a visitor or a tourist. You're a citizen. And it's not just your relationship to that government that's changed, but actually your relationship to the other fellow citizens around you has now changed. Because with the promises that you make and the oaths of allegiance that you take, new rights and responsibilities are conferred on you. Even though there is this whole long process, it's actually in the ritual that that point of change happens. Now you could have become a citizen some other way. We're excellent at paperwork. 
We can make enough paperwork that you could become a citizen with no ritual. But it's important for us to be able to look back and see this almost kind of conversion point where something has changed. You used to not be an American citizen, but now you are. And you can look back and remember that ritual, that experience that you passed through. That ritual takes something that's invisible and abstract, like this concept of citizenship, and it gives it a form. It gives it an experience that you could look back to, point to, even remember. You could look back to that day, look back to that ritual, and remember when your allegiance changed. So I had all of that in mind this week because today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday in our liturgical year before it restarts next week when Advent begins. So it's a week at the, at the end of the, of the church calendar where, that we set aside to remember, to celebrate, and to honor Christ who is our King. But I also had that in my head this week because we're having a baptism. There's so many different ways that we could talk about baptism and what it is. So many different ways that we could talk about what's happening and what God is doing. We could talk about how in baptism we are joined with Christ in his death and resurrection because that's true. We could talk about how we are reborn from water and spirit because that's true from John 3. We could talk about how in baptism our consciences and our hearts are purified because that's true. But here's something else that the early church and actually the persecuted Christians now will feel quite vividly. That baptism is our citizenship ritual. In baptism, we become citizens of a different kingdom. We become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is our Lord. And no one competes with his authority over us. We become Jesus' subjects. Jesus is our king. So we have a king who, in the, the words of Daniel 7 that we read earlier, who rules over all peoples, all nations, all languages. We have a king whose dominion doesn't ever pass away. We have a king whose kingdom cannot and will not be destroyed. Now, this doesn't make Jesus king because he already is. But what it does do is it makes us subjects of this king. Not outsiders, not visitors, and as Paul says in Romans, not even enemies of God anymore. Makes us subjects. Baptism changes our relationship to this king who rules over all things. It's like those citizenship rituals. But even more than that, right? Like we said, when someone goes through a citizenship ritual, their relationship to the government and maybe to their neighbors changes, but not the core of who they are. That doesn't transform them from the inside. Maybe another ritual like a wedding gets us a little bit closer, right? So on your wedding day, you wake up and you are not married, but then you go to the wedding and then you're joined to another person. God actually does something to you and there's actually something very deep about you, very close to the core of who you are that is now new, that's now changed. You woke up and you were not married, but you go home and then you are. That's closer. But in baptism, God goes even deeper because we have this physical washing of water that lets us actually see the process of God making someone else his own. In baptism, we're going to get to see Jesus share his life, death, and resurrection with Winnie. We're going to get to see what is otherwise invisible. 
the invisible made visible. God doing spiritual things, but using physical things so that we can see and hear, so that there's touch. This baptism is not so powerful or so heavy because the water is magic. It's not even going to be because Michael's hand motions are so powerful. It's not going to be because all of our fancy Anglican words charm all the evil out of our souls. There's not any sort of profound gesture that we're making to God that makes this meaningful at all. But it's powerful because God is actually at work through this water. It's powerful because the blood that cleanses us actually belongs to Jesus. It's powerful because this death and resurrection that it binds us to is actually Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and he freely gives it. It's powerful because the kingdom that God ushers us into, think back to Daniel 7, handed over by the ancient of days who sits on that throne surrounded by 100 million people in his throne room. It's the kingdom that he hands over to the Son of Man, but only after the Son of Man dies, rises, and ascends. It's the work of a king whose kingdom, think back to Jesus' conversation with Pilate, whose kingdom is not of this world, But even though it's not of this world, right here, God makes it visible for us so we can see and hear and remember. When he's going to have a new king, she belongs to Jesus. And so now that's going to mean that all of Jesus' promises of security and peace and hope, they belong to her. She's going to be under his authority and protection. And her baptism is a reminder for all of us that we belong to Jesus and that those promises belong to us. Even that life belongs to us. We can look back, look here, and we can remember when we saw and heard the kingdom of heaven break into this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world. And it's just good news to belong to a king like this. Jesus is really clear that that son of man that's talked about at the end of Daniel 7, it's him. He says it over and over in the Gospels. But when he talks about himself as the son of man, listen to the things that he says about himself. The son of man does things like heal the paralyzed and forgive sins. The son of man comes to serve and to even be a ransom for others. The son of man gives food that leads to eternal life. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save those who are lost. And as good news as it is to belong to him, it's bad news not to belong to him. Because he also comes to root out evil. He comes to to do away with the ones who would hurt his people, who would hurt the weak. He judges justly. But even judgment is something that the Son of Man will take on himself. Because as often as he says anything else about himself, he says this, The Son of Man has to suffer. The Son of Man has to die, and then after three days rise again. The Son of Man has to go through these things so that the doors to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to anyone who would follow him. This Son of Man had to suffer so we could be God's children. So that's our king. That's the king who rules this kingdom that can't be shaken or destroyed, this dominion that doesn't go away. And we rejoice on days like today, Christ the King Sunday, because it's just better to belong to that king than to belong to anyone or anything else. 
it's better to be under his authority than to be under any of the world's fickle authorities around us. It's better to be under that king's authority than to try to build our own little puny kingdoms that can't at all measure up to this kingdom that can't be shaken. It's better for us to belong to a king who doesn't load us down with burdens, but actually carries burdens for us. It's better for us to belong to a king who actually joins us in our rejoicing and our celebrating, but who also even joins us in our waiting and in our hoping and in our disappointment and even in our grief. It's better to have a king who's going to point us to a day when his reign is going to be fully established and everything that's broken is going to be undone, pointing us to a celebration that we can actually celebrate with a joy that doesn't have any more of this bitterness or worry or anxiety that actually tampers our joy down. It's better to belong to a king who even knows what it means to suffer, a king who chose to suffer and to die and to rise so that we could have new life. Better to belong to a king who actually chose to suffer so that we could reign with him. So today as we see winning get baptized, I hope that this can remind us of what is actually true for all of us. We have a king who loves us. Loves us so deeply that he's even shared our death so that we could have his life. And that's our king.